Welcome to Discastia, a podcast for parents and teachers about the best way to support kids living with learning difficulties. I'm Michael Shanahan. And I'm Bill Hansberry. (laughs) And today we're talking about how do you get training to be a literacy specialist or to teach a kid how to read. But before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that we're casting to you today from the traditional lands of the Ghana people. You only have to go onto Facebook and look at literacy groups of parents and teachers. You only have to go on there for probably five minutes before you find somebody looking for training. Like, how do I learn how to do this? So there are parents who are out there who get frustrated with the education system or frustrated with their kid not making enough progress. And a lot of them decide that they're going to take it on themselves and maybe homeschool their kid or tutor their kid at home and teach them. And then there are teachers and SSOs out there who genuinely want to learn more and improve their skills in teaching literacy. And they're out there looking for what training do I do? So we thought it would be useful to do an episode about exactly that. What sort of training do you need in order to become a competent literacy tutor, teacher, or specialist? Now, we've gathered some people here today because today is the end of part one of a training course that Bill, Sally, and Karen run, who are here with us today. So I thought we could start just by Bill introducing the course that he runs or that you all run, Um, just a little bit of an overview of it. And then maybe, Bill, if we take it around the table and everyone can introduce their role and what they do in the course. Well, okay. So um, uh, Sally, Karen and I are lucky enough to run a course, which is one of lots of, you know, good courses in Australia um, around uh, what you need to know to become a a specialist multisensory teacher or tutor or or educator, um, typically for kids with disorders of reading and and spelling. So ours is called Teaching Students with Dyslexia, but it's been around for many, many years. It was was originally run by uh, Annette Brock and Alison Playford, um, who slugged away for years uh, running it for Spelled in various places all over the country and uh, handed... Handed the torch over to uh, to Karen, Sally, and I. Oh, what was it? Five years ago? Six years ago? Yeah, something like that. It was five, yeah. yeah. So we get the absolute privilege and honour of having um, people who are passionate about this space. We get teachers, we get parents, we get ESOs, SSOs, school leaders. Uh, we get speech and language pathologists. So um, we get to hang around these people a few times a year, and every year they come with more knowledge. Um, but yeah, so that's that's the space we get to work in. It's our side gig because we all run our own practices. Karen's an educational psychologist, and Sally's a specialist teacher, like I am. So, but it's a nice way to spend the other part of our time, isn't it, folks? Hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Maybe we start with you, Karen, and you could talk a little bit, you know, an introduction of who you are and what part you play in this training course. Okay. Well, I'm um, an educational psychologist, as Bill mentioned. And um, I'm in private practice at Fullerton House and have been there for, well, I've been in practice for, I think, 22 years now, which is hard to believe. Um, But time flies when you're having fun. Um, And uh, my role um, in terms of my work is um, assessing students who come with um, suspicion of various sorts of learning difficulties or who are having learning difficulties. And And my job is to try and tease out what's going on for that individual um, through thorough testing. 
and trying to tease out their strengths, any particular areas of difficulty for them to help in understanding why those difficulties exist. Is it part of a learning disorder of some sort or something else going on for them? And then to support that student and their family to understand um, what's going on for them and how best to support them. And then I um, put that information together in a report that they can then share with the school teachers and uh, look at the kind of support programs that may be relevant to them and how the school can support them most appropriately. And so that parents can advocate for them as they move forward from one teacher to the next or one grade to the next or on into high school and uh, can use that information to, you know, hopefully ensure that they're having good success in their learning. Brilliant. So yeah. you so you meet them really right at the start. It is, of, yeah. Of it the really whole, is the start. You know, identification, diagnosis. Yeah. And kind of give try and give them enough information to set them on the right path. Uh, exactly. That's the way that I view it is it's the start of a journey really mm. for them. And um and hopefully giving them that, you know, good straightforward path to uh to follow and, and an understanding. Um and Essentially, I guess I'm bringing that knowledge base to um, the program, Teaching Students with Dyslexia. And my role in the program is really, I guess, coming and um, sharing insights theoretically into dyslexia and what it is and the underlying core problems that, it, that um, are there that affect the development of reading and spelling skills and leading that into the key remedial elements and why those are appropriate and important to address the dyslexic difficulties and um, support that student in moving forward. Um, and I talk about um, how an assessment for dyslexia is undertaken. And, um, and as we go through, through the program into TSD2, etc., um, understanding the assessment report and the terminology, which often can be confusing for parents. Mm. Um, so trying to break it down so to make those documents really user-friendly and, and working documents, something that can then be taken by a school and, and put into practice easily, hopefully. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> so that's a, that sounds like a big important part of particularly the early training. If someone's going to be a specialist or learn how to teach someone to read, you really need to understand what's causing the issues and yes. you know a direct path to how to remediate it. Yes. And I guess, too, to understand differences from other sorts of learning difficulties and why the key remedial principles are really geared to the specific um, weaknesses of someone with dyslexia so that intervention can be really targeted to what they need rather than more of a generalist approach, which you know many schools do take when it comes to um, reading and spelling support. Often that the support is a little bit broader perhaps than the very specific um, um, supports that students with dyslexia need. Mm -hmm. oh, brilliant. Okay, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Sally, what's your role in the training? And Well, a little bit about yourself and what you do as part of the training course. Sure. I, uh, I've been around uh, teaching children with dyslexia for over 20 years now. And I really came into that because uh, when I came to Australia, I had a break from teaching Came back to it um, as a junior primary teacher and I thought, well, I love teaching reading and we did have dyslexia in the family. I thought, 
I'm just going to carry on and just teach reading. And I thought I knew a lot about reading because I came through college at a time where reading was taught quite well in in college. Uh, However, I quickly found out that it wasn't sufficient for children with dyslexia. You know, I had some good good knowledge, but it wasn't sufficient. So I went off and did the course with Alison Playford at that time. And then my hunger was, thirst was more. So I I did some training through the UK after moving here. I spent all that money to go back and (laughs) go to summer school there and so on. And and then gradually built a practice over here doing that. And um, so one thing leads to another. And and over time, you know, Alison and Annette were saying, look, you know, it's time for us to to sign off. So they handed it over to Bill and myself and to Karen. And so now, um, you know, I spend the time with Bill co-presenting, but um, a lot of my time's in private practice with students from Real Little E's right up. So at the moment, I've got an adult as well. Mm-hmm. So it sounds yeah. like a hu- you've done a huge amount of training. Yes. Like that sounds like a, <laughs> it sounds yes, like a lot have. of I training. Think, um, it's not something that you can do like a three-hour course. No, and no. And I feel and, manifestly uh, inadequate in her presence. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing was, you know, when I lived in the UK, I lived very close to uh, what was called the Dyslexia Institute then. And, and my sister, I was going through a bit of a downtime in my teaching career because I, you know, came, they suddenly switched over to whole language and so on and it just wasn't cutting it for me and my students who were second language kids you know and I was a bit disheartened my students said, oh you should do this training I said, no 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 I'm going I'm not going to do that so of course I come over here and you know some years later end up being twice as much and going back and doing that over there and it's just once you start on this journey and you see what the, the children need that you just want to increase your knowledge and and then your skills um, to be able to deal with the children because um, what I had was pretty good and I still use some of that practice now, but it wasn't sufficient for, for working with children with dyslexia. So, you know, I needed to upskill myself and that went on to further training and, and then further development of, of things with Bill and so on. So, um, yeah, you, I guess, you, you know, if you, if you give up wanting to learn more, it's about time you, you hang up the teaching shoes. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and so what's your role in the course? So in the course, Bill and I probably shared a load of the, the presentation of the lectures. And um, I, I think Bill is fantastic at holding all that um, uh, research in his head. I'm not so good at holding all the research in my head, but I think I come in, you know, more on the practical side of things. Uh, so we we sort of um, have strengths and weaknesses between us, I would say. I would have said you, you and Karen hold the show together, and I just kind of <laughs> no, ride no. on your coattails. Oh no, I don't think do. so. <laughs> and so, Louise, welcome. Uh, could you introduce yourself and what role you have in this course? So, my name is Louise Henrihan, and my role is advocate. So I come along um, as a massive advocate for the bridge between um, the theory and the practice and how participants who graduate from this course can use that. And the way I found myself into this space, I was listening to you, Sally, and I have so many parallels with your story and, and how I arrived here, is that um, it was a family joke, dyslexia, and I don't know, I didn't even get the joke, to be honest, because I really didn't even know what dyslexia was mm. <laughs> until my children started going to school. So uh, my eldest, there's only um, 12 months between them. So Mac blitzed through reception year one, no dramas, off he went. 
uh, it wasn't until he had to write in year two that that turned into something I needed to know about. And at the same time, Violet was in reception and I remember coming home and I had a simple activity. It was an onset and rhyme activity and we just had to put the coloured onset and rhymes into the right basket and it was meant to be fun. Okay, so what is an onset and rhyme? Uh, So it's just um, chunks of sound So where the the last section of the word rhymes, so bun, fun, uh, run. So we were just doing a, a, a placement of that. So we had all the un words in one basket and all the it words in one basket. And that turned into a hysterical meltdown, that game, that family fun time. <laughs> and I, I, um, it wasn't right. And I thought, this should be easy. This should be actually just fun. <laughs> um, and then I also have that dual thing of the shame of being a teacher and a junior primary teacher um, for, for about 15 years at that point. And I was like, I did not know uh, what was going on, what was the problem, why because she couldn't segment these words into their onset and rhyme. The discovery of the phonological core oh, deficit. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that what that's what it was called though, Bill. <laughs> I didn't I didn't have the 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 knowledge base to address what was happening. I just it was a flag. And amazing school teacher who, who just, oh, she's she's active and engaged and it will come. And I'm like, mm. and then year one, it still wasn't arriving. <laughs> mm. Um, and she was becoming um, a brat, you know, really quite rude to people and um, developing self-coping strategies that were not um, compliant in a school setting. <laughs> <laughs> not compatible. No, 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 no. Um, and so um, I, I went off and had a psychological, um, educational psychological assessment and, you know, the great good fortune that Alison Playford's name was on the recommendation after the diagnosis of dyslexia, and that was mid-year two. Uh, so that was quite a number of years of me floundering before mm. I found out what to do. So I came to teaching students with dyslexia one, and I, yeah, jumped on the <laughs> steep learning trajectory. <laughs> Yeah, it is a steep learning trajectory, cool. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so what, what do you actually do in the course? Well, not much. Not much, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't. Don't you I, talk I, it I, down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here as a, a very honoured, invited guest. Yep. Um, and I remember sitting at the end of this course being so overwhelmed by all the things I didn't know. And primarily I was using it for Violet to help Violet as a parent. But obviously, I'm a teacher, so the ways that I could use this knowledge in my classroom to help other kids, I mean, it was a no-brainer. Like, it had to be done. Um, so, I was very lucky. And so, I see my role in the course as really being that cheerleader for the graduates to use what they have in any capacity, parent, um, school support officer or teacher, leader. Lou, if I was a betting man. I would take a punt that you were probably one of the first teachers in Australia out in the front of a class doing grapheme, or South Australia, doing grapheme phoneme correspondence drills, taking what you'd learned from a tier three multisensory approach into a classroom. I reckon you'd be one of the first. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) You know what excites me about that is that now we have developed courses at statewide level um, that 
that is run of the mill. That has to be an element that you teach when you're teaching phonics and spelling reading. It's a part of the reading. And we now know that that encoding, decoding, it has to be combined. This is all things I didn't know, <laughs> mind you, before I started. So this course, you know, it, it really changed my life and my children's life and uh, my students' life. Mm. So you say you have a small part, but I did this course and it's quite a few years ago now and I still remember your presentation <laughs> at the end of the course mm. And I remember it because I was sitting in this room, this very room, feeling utterly overwhelmed and feeling like, I can't do this. Like this is, you know, even after focusing on it for three days, I felt like this is too hard, which kind of says two things to me. It says, if I'm finding it that hard as a grown adult who's spent my life in communications, you know, as my career, imagine how hard it is for a kid. Yeah, right. You know, first starting out. So... I think that for me, you coming and saying, I remember you saying that you felt the same mm. after you'd done that first, you know, that feeling of overwhelm, like you were saying just then. And that was such a relief for me to go, oh, okay, it's not just me. <laughs> Everyone finds this hard. Mm. It is a really complicated thing. Uh, Karen and Sally, uh, we make this too hard, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> People feel like sticking pins in their eyeballs at the end of level one by the sounds. No. I have yeah. to say, though, I think, you know, things have moved on a little bit since you t and you did the course. Right. We're finding now that lots of people coming with some knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, when I first did it, I didn't have the knowledge and I'm sure Bill didn't have the knowledge. Uh, but we're finding now people are coming and there's been a lot happening in the last few years, thanks to people like Lou. Um, so it's not quite as uh, such a dark forest as it used to be. Yeah. And I, having, you know, been a practitioner now for a while, I understand now why I was overwhelmed mm. because it is so complicated. And I think um, how much training do you think you need, Bill? You know, what's the minimum? What a good question. Um, depends how smart you are and how you <laughs> how, how well you remember stuff. No, look, lots. Um, crikey, because I was one of those people that sat in TSD and I remember feeling my eyeballs suck back in my head uh, when the uh, patterning, dividing and coding of words was being taught because uh, there are some there are some bits of this that are hard. Um but like the, everyone else here, guts it out, came back for level two. I was so blessed to have my mentor, Alison Playford, and also Sally to be able to go. And I did a lot of watching Alison teach and, and Sally as well. So I got to whip over to Alison's and just watch it happen, which is really important. But look, it, oh, crikey, what do they say? They talk about 10,000 hours before you... Well, expert, I'm certainly not expert. There's no way there are people that have forgotten more about this stuff than I know now. But um, it's it's heavy, it's intensive, and you never stop. And and then you learn you learn to teach one of these concepts, ideas one way, and then you watch someone else do it another way, and you go, oh right, okay, I reckon that might work better, or that might work better for certain kids. Uh, it's hours and hours and hours because it, this is the result of a complex orthography, Michael, isn't it? Mm. You know, and and then on top of that, you got two you got two levels of uh, knowledge. You've got this English orthography, which is um, difficult, and then you've got to understand specific learning difficulties and the academic therapy part of it, and how you um, 
you know, knowing it's one thing, but unbreaking hearts while you teach it's the other, I guess. So hours and hours and hours. But yeah. break it up. Don't do yes. it all in one. You can't do it all in one hit, no. you mm. know, so it's better to to get the basics under your belt and go and start doing some work with, with some students and then I'll find out, oh, yeah, that worked or no, I didn't quite get that and then go on and, and do some more study. Yeah, and I suppose I'm bringing that up because I think if you're a parent or a teacher who's decided they want to upskill, you know, and they want to learn how to teach literacy in an effective way, I think you need to go in with your eyes open that it's not, you can't just go and do like a day course and, and now you can do it. It's a really complicated thing because there's so many components. And I suppose, Sally, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, what do you, what sort of attitude, attitude do you think someone needs to have when they're coming in to do this training? Or say I'm a parent or say I'm a teacher, what sort of headset do you need to be successful? I think you have to come, obviously, you, you come because you want to learn, you know, I think you might have to suspend your uh, belief or in what you've used up to now, you know, because whilst some parts of it might be useful, um, there are things that we tightly hold on to as teachers. I've done that for 20 years and it worked for me, but it's not necessarily the best practice. So sometimes you just have to put things aside and just listen and observe and, and take in what you're being taught. because. Everything that's been taught is based on research, you know, of what is best for our kids. So I think you've got to do that. You've got to, um, you know, I think you get a lot from coming to a course and doing it with other people as well. You get a lot of interaction, a lot of questioning and, and discussion goes on, which helps you to realise, you know. So we have people on this course today, oh, so I'm doing that, but I've never done the, I've done, never done a spelling card drill with my students at school. I'm doing a whole class thing and they're realising now oh, I need to add that in because that's a vital component. So, you know, come with a willingness to learn and a, and a willingness to put down things that are not necessarily the most helpful. Mm. Mm. And, and what do you think the most difficult thing is for people when they come to the training? What's the hardest thing to get your head around, do you think? Like from your – because mm. you've seen a lot of people come mm. in and out of training. Mm. Is there a, like a common theme of people always go, oh, this is so hard, this particular bit? or I think, I mean, as I said before, I think people are coming with a bit more knowledge now than they're used to. But when we do this session on pattern encoding and dividing words into syllables, that's huge. There's a lot of work goes along that. You, I remember you finding that quite hard, didn't you, Michael, <laughs> that day? You know, uh, so that's, that's huge, you know, that particular component. I think also um, the cards, the card drills are, are quite challenging for them, you know. So we, we did a card drill today and we, they'd seen it multiple times, but we were still getting some mistakes going on. So, you know, that sort of thing where you think, you think oh, this looks easy, I've got that. But, you know, you need that repeated return and learn. Uh, and I think getting used to the fact that uh, in this training, we, we emphasise very much a, a routine lesson teachers are infamous we go oh I'll just do a bit of this and a bit of that and I'll jump over here and do a bit of this and a bit of that so we don't teach like that when we're teaching our kids with dyslexia we teach a very structured um, lesson and it's got components in it and a plan to it that we follow for a reason because it makes the children feel secure it makes us feel secure too um, and, and it works. That's a really easy question for me to answer as a teacher if I was teaching maths I use the meta-language of maths. 
I used the scientific language to explain what I was doing and how and why I was doing it. When I was teaching reading, I was not using any exact precise language to explain what was happening. So I found it really um, overwhelming and challenging just learning what a phoneme was, what a grapheme is, what phonological awareness is, what the layers of that are. That was huge and something that I directly and immediately took back to not only Violet at home but the classroom. There's an insight there. I've never thought about it that way. So what was underlying, because I was the same, what was underlying that okayness to kind of do the teaching of language in this holus, bolus, non-precise um, way when at the same time we're teaching mathematics using a very specific meta-language and all that sort of thing? I mean, how did, was, that the whole, was that the whole language? Well, it comes to, yes, but it comes down to the training that you expose yourself to. Now, I would rather do three days of intensive, challenging, evidence-based, researched, informed training that I can use immediately than the years I spent on reading circles and, you know, <laughs> all of these vague things that did not move my learners and they most certainly didn't help my daughter. I needed something more, like Sally said, that was precise around what the educational psychologist's report said that my daughter needed. Um, that's what I needed to know about. So yeah. that's how I got here. <laughs> Karen, you're a teacher. Uh, you started out as a teacher. Mm -hmm. What's your take on all this? What you're hearing us say about um, the way English or has been or literacy has been taught this broad stuff and, and we're only just now getting our head around the fact that this is structured and needs to be structured and we need to know what we're doing. What have you observed in the many, many educational assessments you've written with teachers as your main audience? Um, how has that stuff been taken on generally by teachers over the years? And have you seen teachers getting better at being able to take this stuff on? Yeah, absolutely. Getting better. Um, yeah, certainly there, I think all English speaking countries um, for quite a number of years, probably a couple of decades, in fact, um, were following a whole language approach to teaching literacy. And that was certainly um, very widespread in Canada before I came here. That's the way I was trained as a teacher as well, so with the whole language approach. And, um, and you know, right from the get-go, because my work has always been centered around specific learning disorders, um, I've always recommended certain methodology. And, you know, it, it certainly made sense to parents when you explained why um, certain elements were important for their, for their child and to help them move forward. Um, I did find that teachers were receptive to it in principle, but did not necessarily have the skills or access to programs to be able to put it into practice in, in I guess, a consistent way or from one year level to the next year level. Um, so, yeah. How important do you think it is for people, you know, who are learning about this to consider the psychological components that dyslexia brings for kids you know the psychological emotional challenges that it might bring for kids who are living with dyslexia well i think it's very important um certainly 
a lot of children, by the time that they come for an assessment, have had um, varying previous assessments of, of varying kinds, whether it's um, assessments for certain interventions at school or whether it's assessments with a speech pathologist, occupational therapist, etc. So, and often they have been through varying sorts of supportive programs or programs that were intended to support them and, and help them improve. Um, and, you know, that can take a toll on kids, certainly, in terms of, of I guess, not necessarily helping them move forward as they expected and um, sort of further undermining their confidence um, and the difficulties that they have day-to-day in terms of managing literacy-wise in the classroom and tackling their schoolwork, keeping up with their peers is something that certainly can affect their self-efficacy. They're um, contributing to things like learned helplessness or um, feeling anxious about how they're going or their inability to keep up with their peers. So, you know, understanding that, being able to help parents understand their children's um, concerns and how they can support them most effectively and helping the student themselves through the assessment process to understand why they're having difficulty and um, to understand their strengths as well Mm. and what that means for them as a learner and how they're going to find a path forward that suits them so that they can have, you know, a greater sense of, of ability, a sense of confidence in themselves, give them that sense of motivation to persist mm. going forward, because it's not easy for them. Mm. So as a parent, are there things they can do to create a more supportive environment for kids that might be living with learning difficulties? At home? Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Um, well, there are, certainly. <laughs> Certainly, um, one thing that I think is really important is ensuring that students have an opportunity at the end of a school day when they're often mentally exhausted, if not physically exhausted, to chill out and do things that they enjoy, to make sure that they have lots of opportunity to engage in activities where they can have success and, you know, build their strengths in other areas. So it might be through sport or art or jumping around and dancing, you know. Um, all of those things that just allow them to be and be themselves and to grow and flourish um, and kind of put school aside in in many respects. I think that's really, really important for students who struggle all day at school Um, and for parents to celebrate that with them, you know, so to be there to watch them in their sport when they can and and to, you know, really celebrate that and talk about that with them. Um, In terms of supporting them, School-wise, I think, again, having um, as relaxed an environment as possible if they're helping them tackle things like their homework, for example, and having like a, a, have that be structured in a sense as much as is possible in, in setting up, um, like considering times that are, are, I guess, that will work most effectively for them and, and their child logistically in terms of setting, say, every afternoon just after dinner we'll sit down and do 15 minutes of homework or something like that so it becomes a bit of a routine and there's less likely um you know it's less likely that there will be resistance or procrastination if it's a given that things are going to happen and it's for a finite amount of time um and yeah lots lots of encouragement in in understanding and recognition of the fact that 
tackling literacy-based work and certain aspects of mathematics typically are, are really challenging for them. Mm. And, and Louise, as a parent, what have you found really works? Mm. Because you are a parent who decided to learn how to do it yourself. Mm. Um, would you recommend that? If I'm a parent and I'm considering, do I learn how to treat tutor my kid myself? Would you recommend that as a course? I think each child is going to have a unique <laughs> way that they might respond to their parent um, working with them. But what I do recommend is that you build a great network of people. So from a really good educational psychologist um, um, report, they often list a number of associations or evidence-based places where you can go. So that was the first thing I did as a parent. I armed myself with uh, Spelled SA, um, who have a lot of free resources for parents. Um, also, I was put in touch with an amazing bookshop, Select Educational, um, and they had so much there for parents in the way of what I could do in a, in a game base to reinforce what was happening in the tutoring lessons with Sally and Alison. So that was the way I got a leg in that way. Then Violet had no choice. She was absolutely going to learn my way. <laughs> Look, she stuck with me for two years and, um, you know, and, and I appreciate that. And she, and she laughs now when we get out the cards because I still use her card deck. <laughs> I've only ever been to teaching point, you know, 52 though. <laughs> I need to go beyond. Um, so... Um, but what that allowed me to do in that parent and bridging then into that teacher space, I said, well, Violet, okay, you don't want to do this with me, bring a friend. So she had a number of friends oh, who benefited, right. benefited from uh, teaching. So okay. I just paired them up um, as students. And so she brought one of her classmates in. And so we kept on going. And I was lucky because the school allowed me to do that during class time because I had enough evidence and I was able to gather my teaching and my parent, um, you know, collective information there to say to the school, well, look, you know, I can voluntarily do this, you know, a couple of times uh, with these kids. And then it became something that other parents were interested in because what was being offered at the time was not supportive of students with dyslexia. So some parents <laughs> don't want to get into that murky water of being a, mm -hmm. a, a teacher and a parent. Uh, we were talking to somebody on the course yesterday and, and finding it really difficult to try and tutor the child so she came up with this idea of putting on a hat when when she's in teaching mode and then you know the other children would not were not allowed to interrupt and the child the child himself knew that this is the time we're going to settle down and do some work you know I, I used to run a course for trying to teach teachers how to teach uh, teach parents how to teach their children and you know it mixed results because Sometimes the parents will give up before the, <laughs> before the children. So I think it's, it's, it's challenging for parents. You know, sometimes the best they can do is be a good advocate for their, for their child by banging on the doors at school and, and making sure those children are getting the right sort of help there. Teaching your own kids is hard. And mm -hmm. um, over the years that I've done this, I've probably only encountered a very small handful of parents that have managed to do this in you know in a way that you'd say is partially successful and you know what if I was in that boat I certainly wouldn't be one of them because I just don't have the patience with my own kids you know so those that um, somehow get there Lou oh man I take my hat off to you because it just takes incredible persistence and I would imagine walking away every now and then 
Yes. Yeah. That did happen. <laughs> and breathing. <laughs> Let it go. Let it go, yeah. Let it go. Um, yeah, yeah. It sounds like the general advice is if you're a parent to have a good think about whether it's something that you think you could do, you know, with your kid, depending on your relationship, because parent-child relationships are tricky, you know, because there's so much more to it Mm. than just the learning Mm. component. Even if a parent comes along and gets the why of what is happening in the tutoring, you will absolutely make sure the card deck is done, the reading cards. You will absolutely make sure that practice is being done because you know the why of how that unfolds later Mm. in life. So I had absolute blessing um, to watch um, Alison do the lessons for a year and a half before Violet left her expertise and was worked with me. Um, but I knew the components of the lesson then. But I wasn't, I suppose, I had my teacher hat on by then, not so much a parent. But definitely coming and doing this course as a parent will give you those things to know where to spend your time and your effort at home. Yeah, that's a great point. So even if you don't end up tutoring your kid, you can give them much better support mm. if you understand what it is mm. that, Particularly that they're doing and why child. they're doing it. Yeah, mm. And you may possibly have other children coming up. Okay. You, you'll spot it early. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what if I'm a teacher? So here I am at my school and I'm interested now in structured literacy, teaching by evidence, how do I go about choosing a course? So, you know, not everyone lives in South Australia. Not everyone could come and do this course that you run. So, you know, even if I'm in a, a regional area, for example, how do I get the training that I need? Once again, Australia has got some great associations. So there is a Spelled WA and Spelled New South Wales and Spelled South Australia. Uh, Spelled WA have a list of recommended programs for parents to do at home. Um, And also they have a similar uh, list of recommended um, evidence-based structured synthetic programs that are recommended for students with dyslexia. So Mm. that's a good starting point. And there's lots of Facebook pages parents go on to and and they talk amongst themselves about Mm. what they found useful. But if I'm a teacher... Oh, yeah. as a teacher, ah, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, so if I'm a we've teacher. Yeah. <laughs> I know, we've been talking about parents. <laughs> yeah. That, that bit, I guess, has been a bit um, – well, it really depends on what's happening in the school you're in. We've, everyone sitting at this table has seen that parent, um, that parent uh, who has actually um, – and some of them, sometimes they've been teachers, right, who have started things rocking and rolling in a school. In my experience, it's it's – one person. So this teacher, who might be often is a parent of a student with dyslexia, they they somehow find something. They find this course or that course, or they find Ron Yoshimoto, or they find OG, or they find Lynn Stone, or you know, and um, they march back into school, and uh, and they very bravely uh, say mm, something's off here, and then they start, like Lou said, they start with their own class and we will all of us will say you don't have to change your school to get change going you just start playing in your own space um and sometimes that's up against a fair bit of resistance especially if the school's um heavily you know whole language the ideological um so there's been many a fight fought over this um but these people like lou i'm looking at lou (laughs) 
just remembering that video I sent to all the principals. Yep. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> let's, yes. go, let's go there. This is therapy. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, you do it, Lou. Tell us about it. <laughs> so I, 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 I armed myself with this course and I started doing things in my own school and we were getting great traction. There was actually a lot of student growth, um, self-esteem. There were Parents were becoming interested. We, it had a really good movement. And I wanted that to happen at my children's school. <laughs> so I did all the nice, calm ways of, you know, disseminating information. <laughs> and after about a year, it wasn't working. And I had a particular morning where mm, I, I just saw a bit of a literacy lesson that Violet was in and, and it was completely complete waste of her time being there. And not only that, it was well, it was damaging to her self-esteem. I could see her face that she was n- not having a bar of it. Uh, so I, I had four or five coffees and I made a seven-minute long video <laughs> and I had, this is evidence-based and this is what the research tells us. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately... I, for my career, <laughs> I, said, oh. I, I, I did send that uh, video to a number of principals. And look, you know, it, uh, I remember my mum, I did send it to my mum and Bill, and my mum said, Louise, please tell me you didn't send that. And I went, oh, yeah, it's gone. And Bill was like, yes, Lou, you did it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, you know, um, Sometimes as a teacher, you are given something to work with and it's not until you know better that you can actually start to do better. And look, maybe that wasn't the best thing for me to do at the time, but I absolutely supported some other teachers who just weren't quite ready to make a bit of noise at that particular time. But collectively, we were then able to bring about change. Lou, you did exactly what the universe called you to do at that moment. It didn't ruin your career. (laughs) It created a different path for you. Thank goodness it did, because look at all the people you get to impact now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you did it. Well, (laughs) thank you, Bill. You did make me feel much better on the day. Okay, so I'm a teacher in a class. I start to do some investigation. Where should I start? Because you want to build up a level of confidence first before you start going out and making videos or before you want to, you know, make a splash in your school or put yourself out there. You want to develop a level of knowledge so that you're not kind of, you know, shot down the very first time you speak out, you know, without a leg to stand on. So where would you start if you were a teacher and you were looking for that sort of evidence? We've talked about the spelled websites, um, but is there anything? Oh, I know. Well, um, five from five in Australia. Um, there, are, there are some really good uh, conduits that, um, like five from five that are trying to get research into the classroom. Um, we've got the South Australian Department of Education. You've got some fantastic stuff up now. Um, uh, the Reading League in the US, um, the science of reading. Um, well, what is it, Lou? The- well, look, in, um, in South Australia at the moment, in the Department of Education, we have practical guides that are freely available to all educators. Um, and these practical guides are on the big six of reading and it goes in depth about the components of reading instruction. Um, we include oral language here in South Australia. That's why it's the big six and not the five, the five. Um, And those practical guides um, include 
um, the simple view of reading as well. So it's bringing in that evidence base. So our teachers are really supported. And do you have to be in South, a South, South Australian teacher to access that? I believe it's freely available on the department website. So yes, but um, yeah, it's it's there to be shared. Okay. Sally, what do you think about um, if you were starting out as a teacher, where would you go? What was What are your thoughts on that, on how do you start making a change as a teacher? You know, you mentioned before that some people come and to the training and one of the most difficult things they find is, you know, changing the way they're teaching. Mm. What sort of advice would you have for how to go about I think that, that mindset? How yeah, do you how do you break I, that barrier? It's, it's very tricky. I think you, you find a peer and <laughs> do it together or go and find somebody to watch who's, you know, a step ahead of you. Like we do all do it when we're learning something. We copy, don't we? Who's Who's got it going? Uh, go out to the, you know, there's, there's visits to schools where they're getting this work going you know we've had that happening here in south australia where there's there's really good practice happening so if you can get yourself along to that that gives you a start um and yeah find a buddy find yeah, a buddy in your school because i think doing it on your own is quite hard work you know you you might be swimming against a tide in your school um but you know gather two or three others and you can create a force Mm, buddy up in a school or even buddy up online. Mm. I suppose you don't have to be in the same school as somebody to make a connection yeah. and, and start and, learning you know, together. Making, I was talking, to, I was talking to, to Bill's wife actually today and saying, you know, we're, they're on the journey and, and um, saying you, we want to do it all at once, yeah. you know, but you can't do it all at once. You know, what's one thing you can put into practice for this, this term, you know, to get things moving? And then when you've got that working properly, what's the next thing? It's not a quick fix, unfortunately, you know, um, we ha so we have to, you know, do that whole thing of the elephant, you know, one bite at a time. Yeah, that's interesting. It's important you say that. This stuff is so darn addictive when you start to bring this into classrooms and you do pretty quickly, like you said, Lou, see things start to shift in, in how kids are learning and you, we do want to do everything straight away, but we're only human. It, mm. it is a really big job changing the direction of a, of a whole school. Um, but of course, as soon as we see something, we're crikey, we want to be all over it, don't we? Mm. Mm. And that can be quite alienating to other members of the staff if you're just going, oh, get me to this and get me to this, you know. So you, you have to be, you know, use a little bit of discretion and discernment as to what you're going to tackle first. Mm. And it's so big. And I remember advice you gave me, Bill, because when I was here starting my training and freaking out, <laughs> it was during a lunch break. And I was thinking, when, when do I start? Because I hadn't started tutoring because I didn't feel like I knew enough. You know, it, I did that first lot of training, but I didn't start. I didn't start until I did the second lot of training because I just didn't feel confident enough. I didn't feel like I knew it enough, even though I'd been doing, doing a whole lot of work on it. And the advice you gave me was just to start and just be one or two steps ahead of the mm. kids. You don't have to know yeah. everything. You That's know, what you don't I, would, have to. I did with my first students, you know, I'd, I'd never taught a child over eight and they gave me this 12 or 13 year old, you know, and I thought, far out, how am I going to do this? You know, and I, I don't think I'd even done Alison's training at that point, but, you know, 
I did about a month afterwards. And I would just go and I'd, I'd just be one step ahead of him. You know, I'd read, oh, what are we doing next week? Oh, I'd read the teaching point notes and, and then prepare myself, made loads of materials, which later on I then chucked out because I realized there were flaws in them and, and start again. So that's how you learn by your mistakes um, and just start small and, and build your confidence and go on from there. And this applies for people in the classroom too, doesn't it? Hmm. Um, the, we're all going to make mistakes. You know, we, we have an old saying, we have a saying, all mistakes are useful. Um, you're going to stuff things up. Mm. You know, I've, crikey, I cut my teeth on my first few students and I, we all kind of shudder, don't we, when we look back on our early students. But you're right, we were just a teaching point ahead. Classroom teachers, um, you're, you're all building or you're flying this plane and building it at the same time because you've got two things going on. You're building your own knowledge base and you're at the same time working out how to teach this stuff. So you're dealing with your own knowledge and the pedagogy. Um, and it is huge. So you, I think a bit of self-forgiveness is probably something to, worth thinking about as well. You certainly have to because I find certainly I do make mistakes. <laughs> but the, prob- the, other, the other thing I think about it is, and this was a realisation the more I started to do, was that you don't have to get it all into one session. Oh. The, and, you know, this is where, you know, I was personally very overwhelmed, but um, just seeing that tiny little incremental steps that you take. So working with kids with learning difficulties, I find by definition, if I try to go too fast, and this was the mistake I made early on, I tried to do too much because mm-hmm. I was so excited and enthusiastic about it. And, you know, you try and pass all your knowledge on, but you soon find that you've gone way too fast and you've got to... Like the skill have A-T-P-N-S-A-D, open syllables and closed syllables by the end of this lesson, Michael. This will be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I- instead I find uh, I found once I started that I actually had plenty of time because I was actually just taking that first teaching point and... Often it wasn't just one teaching point and one lesson. It was one teaching point might take two or, or three lessons of practice and mm. practice and mm. practice and, you know, looking at it from different angles before it really sunk in because it is complicated. It is. And, you know, coming – this is one of the things I found the hardest, coming from being a classroom teacher, learning to go at a student's pace instead of at what the curriculum says the pace should be. So I would – typically over plan and then try to push kids to get every blooming thing I had planned for them. And, and of course, when we start pushing these kids, they just mentally fold up and shut down. You know, it's, so that was the hardest bit. And I remember going, ah, so I've been in this culture as a classroom teacher for years when it's actually not about kids' pace. It's about curriculum pace, and that was the hardest thing for me. Now, that doesn't help any classroom teachers, but uh, any of you who are, you know, considering working privately or even in intervention, Seriously, even in school-based intervention, do you know what? You'll have one idea about what a kid should know at the end of a session and then that kid will rock up and they're having a bad hair day and it happens with specific learning difficulties. It's just not firing for them and you're just, it, you'll be putting something back in the folder that you planned to get to them and you didn't. And I thought explicit teaching was talking in a clear voice. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) She does that anyway. (laughs) No swearing. (laughs) No. So there was so much to learn and the structure of a lesson. And like you were saying before, as a teacher, I thought a little bit of this works and a little bit of that works. And it was too much. My lessons were so convoluted. Mm. I wasn't explicit about anything. Mm. So this course taught me to 
take one teaching point and teach it to mastery. Mm-hmm. So that, and as well as teaching me that, you know, one graphene might have multiple phonemes. Like, who knew? <laughs> there was so much I learned. And, and, and actually, all jokes aside, it did teach me about spelling. I, I'm, a, uh, you know, terrible still at spelling um, and it's quite embarrassing sometimes, but this course taught me how to spell. So, um, <laughs> winner. <laughs> I think maybe if we go around the table and just ask, what's your one pearl of wisdom? That you would give. You help me with this, Michael. You just have to be one step ahead of the student, <laughs> knowledge-wise. That's mine. I say just go for it. Do something because doing nothing is not going to help your students. So, you know, face your fear and do something because, um, you know, if it's not your child, there's a whole lot of children out there that need the help. You know, we it's been wonderful to watch so many children now are getting good intervention through schools but there's still not enough people out there who are able to deliver tier three type of intervention. My advice is use your networks, call on them to um, team up, buddy, plan a lesson, watch each other, send each other videos of your lessons, use that network and and don't worry about making mistakes because you need to. (laughs) You need to get something wrong sometimes for it to stick. Yeah. Um, So yeah. Get comfortable with hanging around people who know heaps more than you do in this space. Get comfortable with that, oh, my gosh, these people are so much smarter than me. I don't know anything. Get used to imposter syndrome because you'll never know it all. Suck it up. Mm. (laughs) Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Sally, when you assess a student and you see that student go back out into the world and things happen for them, it all works, are there certain essential components that you always see are common to a fact that a kid actually gets on the right path. What does the school do? What do you see the parent do? What what makes it work for a kid after an assessment if they get on a good trajectory? I think the students who who do the best are the ones who have teachers who are are positive and encouraging with them, um, where they again have have parents who are behind them in terms of reinforcing and and doing review and practice and where in the the school they have a good remedial program for them or outside intervention so that good structured cumulative multi-sensory um phonics based um language instruction the that core content that's so important for supporting students who are struggling with lit- literacy development Well, thank you very much, everyone. Brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much for your insights. If you want to find any of the references, all the things we've talked about, we'll be putting together show notes and links on our website, discastia.com. And remember, you can share this or subscribe on our website to keep up to date when we release a new episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Blessed to be among such esteemed company. (laughs) Thanks, folks. (laughs) 